Hello everyone, and welcome to Smiles After Hours. Tonight we will be discussing what is probably a fairly, I hope, close reading of the prologue Memories of Ice, because I wanted to do this episode in light of a few discussions I've had recently, mostly with AB, which have gone live, um, but also over on the subreddit with regards to notions of historicity, of mythology, of, well, and the everlasting meme slash um, adage, I guess, of Kalor doing nothing wrong. And I suppose I should explain what that is in this context, because a lot of people use it in a lot of different contexts, but for our purposes, Kalor did nothing wrong is going to be a shorthand for a certain analytical lens taken to bear on the prologue of Memories of Ice and what it means. Because if you look at his life story, Galar did quite a few things wrong, right? But in this particular case, we're mostly interested solely on the prologue of Memories of Ice and the fall, and the subsequent rage of Galar, as it came to be known. Now, <clears throat> to that end, I want to invoke two scenes, one of them being the prologue of Memories of Ice itself, right? The second prologue, if you want to get technical. <clears throat> and the other scene is a scene in Chapter 12 of Midnight Tides, which I'm going to reference quite a few times, and I'm actually going to attempt to read it somewhat closely. Um, it is a scene between <clears throat> Bryce Beddick and Solgas Ruin. We'll get to it in due time. If you want to read it ahead of time, that will be, be nice. So, without further ado, let's get into it. So the scene starts, and it sets us off on the continents of Corellia and Jakaruku in the time of dying, which is apt. It's apt for a few reasons. <clears throat> it's apt because it sets the frame where you are and when you are in an aptly mythological manner. Continent of Corellary and Jakaruku is very much non-committal because it's a large continent, and the time of dying is appropriately mythical in the sense that it can refer to any point at any mythological state, like the way we use prehistory or antiquity to mean you know, some era. Uh, the problem arises when it gets extraordinarily specific, right? It says it's, it takes also it takes place a hundred and nineteen thousand seven hundred thirty-six years before Burn's sleep, three years after the fall of the crippled god. Now, why is this? I say it's a problem. It's not a problem per se. What it is is an affirmation, an affirmation that what you're currently reading is way too specific. It's way too detailed. It's way too clean. You know, this is a very mythical narrative in and of itself. Um, and one of the big things that goes on in the series is narratives are difficult to trust, for lack of a better word. Take the imperial narratives, right? They were supposedly crafted a hundred years ago in the Book of the Fallen. We have so, so many contradicting narratives from people who are living right now. Uh, here you have untold generations that have gone by, and the only people surviving from that time is, well, Kalor and the, the other gods, right? So, who is vouching for this information? Nobody. It's it's a myth. And when the Daijisa gets so precise on a specific detail, it's important to make a note of. Because in this case, our narrator has no right to know exactly when this takes place. In comparison to the date system, which is which has no reason to be consistent with itself. We don't know exactly how many years are in one year of Burnsleep, how many months, rather. 
Uh, we don't know how many years have gone by since then in this month system. We don't know if the same applies. We don't know if how they counted years or seasons or whatever. Three years after the fall of the crippled god is already pushing it, giving you a precise date. <laughs> well, you know, I might as well say it was like it was a Tuesday, mildly overcast. It's 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 too detail, yeah, and it's not a mistake. It's a hint. Okay, great. What is the hint of words? That this is a mythological fabricated narrative. It is something that has been crafted. It's not the events retold as they happened. It is a myth that has been crafted to tell a tale in a specific manner to show a specific thing. What thing? Well, in this case, the cursing of Kalor and the fall of a crippled god, with some ultimate lesson being about hubris, right? Because this mortal cursed the three other gods and they cursed them in return. So perhaps the ultimate goal is hubris. I also want to mention that the prior prologue to this, Prologue 1, also has a very specific um, date. The 33rd Jagged War, 298,665 years before Prince Sleep. And it's quite obviously taking the piss <laughs> of the self-importance of the Imos. And they're calling <clears throat> their um, essentially genocide of a race, starting with individual families, a war. Or multiple horns. But that's besides the point. <clears throat> then the prologue, I'm not gonna relate it word for word. That's for a more, uh, I suppose, a better medium would be text. So I'm gonna go over in more broad strokes and I'm gonna highlight a few sentences here and there. What I find interesting is that there's this first part, which is related in a third person omniscient view from no person in particular. Now, if you finish the series, you can probably extrapolate that this means Kevin Sod. But what's important is that this sets the tone, or rather it sets a tone. <clears throat> it sets a tone which is not followed to the rest of the prologue because it shifts to Cruel's perspective. But this omniscient perspective gives us that the fall had shattered a continent. Forests had burned, the firestorms lighting the horizons in every direction, bathing crimson, the heaving ash-filled clouds blanketing the sky. It's visceral. Right? There's a lot of flowery description for just how sheerly destructive this is. It had shattered a continent. It had burned an entire continent to the ground, and then it raged on for months. It had left people helpless, driven to insanity, hunger, cannibalism, stuff like that. Ah, what I was saying. It had left a few scattered survivors, right? And those few scattered survivors had been driven mad with rage and hunger. They had resorted to savagery and cannibalism and the like. And then gives you this other god who walks through seemingly unmindful of the situation. And yes, he does absorb their suffering, he does take pity on their souls, and he does say that, you know what, maybe if the situation were different, I would have <clears throat> I would have taken on their, I would have erased their broken souls, but I need their power. You know, I need the power of the blood and the sacrifice that has, on, that has gone on here. I need the ability Right? I need to be able to fix this great injustice. And what's important is that it does not tell you what this great injustice is. It just, tells you, it just shows you, first of all, the aftermath of the fallen Gorel. Okay? It shows you the sheer scale of the destruction. Then it introduces some dude who, in other contexts, he's described by like a blunt, um, wrapped in rotting rags of average height with blunt features and unprepossessing. The dark cast of his face, heavy inflexibility in his eyes. He would otherwise look completely normal, except in this case where he looks completely out of place. 
That's horribly out of place. There's no world in which you would find someone like this in a place like this, in a time like this, if they were an important. And yeah, you do learn very quickly that this is another deity and he was cruel and whatnot, but the point is the framing of the story shows you, first of all, from a human perspective, of just how bad this is. It's horrendous. It's terrible. It's unthinkable. And then it goes on to show you that, you know what? There's this other god, and he doesn't really care because the circumstances he finds himself in don't allow him to care. Now, interestingly, the Digesis does not ascribe malice to cruel. It does say that, quote, in cruel's wake, men and women killed men, killed women, killed children. Dark slaughter was the river the Elder God rode. Elder Gods embodied a host of harsh pleasantries. <clears throat> but it does not say that cruel is bad for this. It does not say that cruel is malicious, is malevolent, or maleficent, I suppose would be a more apt descriptor. He is not bad. It's just who he is. This is his nature. This is not the first time he's done this. We learn very soon that, like, quote, um, temples had been raised in Cruel's name, blood had for generations soaked countless altars in worship of him, and so on. But <clears throat> it's a neat introduction from third person looking on, which could be or could not be common, so we're not sure, about how we should perceive the scene, how we should perceive Cruel, this guy who is walking through scenes of untold suffering, and he looks upon them and thinks, yeah. I could use this, not out of malice, but under necessity. Because what's happening here is someone has done something terrible and <clears throat> has absolutely decimated a continent. Who that is, or why that is, we don't know yet. We learn very quickly, sure, but we don't know. And the framing is interesting. <clears throat> I will call attention to the framing again and again in this video, by the way, so just so you know. Moving on, we have Cruel's perspective. And interestingly, Cruel mentions three things, right? That the foreign god had been uh, torn apart, and he had screamed in a voice that had been heard by half the world. And that voice contained pain, outrage, and grief. This is interesting because the earlier part, the disembodied voice of a narrator that could potentially be the crippled god, only gives you pain and outrage. He does not give you grief, which is weird. But it's also interesting because it paints an, weird, an interesting picture of how we should view Cruel. He too is a deity. He would know of how such a deity would feel, unlike any other human. He is more closely connected with the fallen god than he is with any of the scattered survivors who have resorted to cannibalism to survive. Weirdly, to that end, um, to compound the um, inherent inhuman morality of uh, Cruel, he seems to care much more about what the god thinks and feels than about any of the humans present. His first concern is what is the threat posed to me by this deity, not holy shit, a few million people have just died. Like, that happens, you know? Um, and to compound this, he later goes on and says that, quote, The summoners were dead, destroyed by what they had called down upon them. There was no point in hating them, no need to conjure up images of what they in truth deserved by way of punishment. They had, after all, been desperate, desperate enough to part the fabric of chaos, to open a way into an alien, remote realm, to then lure a curious god of that realm closer, ever closer to the trap they had prepared. And I want to pause on this and ponder a little bit, but Kroon does not ascribe much of anything to the summoners beyond desperation, a feeling of helplessness. 
and in that helplessness, he, I don't want to say forgives, but he does not blame. He does not think, oh, they should be punished for XYZ reasons. He thinks, this happened, and they're dead, so we can move on. Which is not necessarily a bad attitude to have. It is something of a weird attitude when you come across the survivors of these people and you don't help them. But, again, he claims that this power will be needed. And I want to stress that the Digesis does not... I want to stress that the Digesis does not necessarily um, prove him wrong or countermand him in this... um, In his opinion, like, it's not like Cruel is thinking this, but something else is happening. No, he really does need the power. It's just... (laughs) The necessity is horrific. And I think that's what the Digesis wants to show you, that this guy doesn't care as much as he should, perhaps, because he's not human. And though his reasons are understandable and perhaps even laudable, the actions which he's about to take are inherently awful, if not bad. Not good or bad, they're necessary, but they're awful, okay? The summoners then sought power, all to destroy one man. And then you find that find out what this whole shebang was about, right? Someone parted the Warren of Chaos, well, the fabric of reality, whatever you want to call it. It's literally just some metaphysical aspect, which they opened a rent, they pulled the god through. The how and why are not relevant. Well, the why is relevant, the how isn't. <clears throat> and we learned the why. I spoke this soon. We learned the why. And the why is because they had to destroy somebody. And I want to highlight the poignancy of this. <clears throat> Scattered survivors remained, reduced to savagery, wandering a landscape pocked with huge craters, now filled with murky, lifeless water, the sky churning endlessly above them. Kinship had been dismembered, love had proved a burden too costly to carry. They ate what they could, mocked each other, and scanned the ravaged world around them with rapacious intent. These were innocents. These people have nothing to do with anything that Kalor, spoiler alert, has to do. With anything. Not the Thaumaturgs, not the Summoners, no, no, nobody. And Krull understands this. He understands the necessity and he just doesn't think, not necessarily doesn't think that they're at fault, it's just that he doesn't seem to highlight the sheer cruelty of this whole thing, of the, the, the sheer destruction caused by a handful of individuals who we're soon about to learn, like either 7 or 12. I'm not spoiling Blood and Bone here, by the way. It's so new, uh, because of Fallen. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's bizarre, you know, it's bizarre because when you don't highlight, as Cruel does not do as much, the sheer scale of the destruction and its intended target, it can go a bit under the radar, you know, just, just to think the sheer scale of this crime before Kalor even does anything, right? Because what can happen to Corel was not Kalor, that was the Summoners, completely the Summoners, that was a fall, right? They destroyed two whole civilizations to destroy one person. God damn. I'll get to discussing this when we actually get to the the juice, right? Let's keep that in mind. Then we find out that um well, completely. The great ravens are the spawn of the real god, which is neat. <clears throat> um and we find out Cruel is, quote, a strong god who could ignore the scavengers that trailed in his wake. Because temples had been raised in his name, blood had for generations soaked countless altars in worship of him. The nascent cities were wreathed in the smokes of forges, pyres, the red glow of humanity's dawn. 
The first empire had risen on a continent half a world away from where Kuhl now walked, an empire of humans, born from the legacies of Lanamas, from whom it took its name. And this is somewhat peculiar, if you would. He brings up a whole different empire, right, which someone would read a reader, a listener, an audience member who is privy to this myth would probably be aware of in a similar, excuse me, in a similarly mythical context, right? He would know of the first empire of the Symbolakis. He would probably also know of the Calorian Empire, perhaps. Um, but perhaps not the extent to which, um, let me rephrase that, Cruel calls upon what is probably at least mythologically the progenitor of most human empires and invokes it in the sense that they worship me. Like, I'm hot shit here. I'm a big deal for you, Mr. Audience listener, after like a few hundred thousand years. You should know of me. You should worship me, even if I'm gone. Because reasonably, if Calor's curse has taken place, most people wouldn't know of Cruel, right? So, in that sense, tying Cruel into this mythical first empire of humans and pitting him against this other human empire, which is so terrible that this elder god had to come down, who's, who has been worshipped for generations, whose, blood, whose elders have been shedding blood countless times. It paints a picture. It, it predisposes you differently towards Cowor's empire and Cowor's actions than it would otherwise. As I said, the framing is very important in this scene. Um... But it had not been alone for long. Here, on Drakoriku, in the shadow of long-dead Kichenkimal ruins, another tie-in to what could possibly be important, you know, like, rather than being born of the Tlanimath, they're born of the Kichenkimal. Right? They're born of another mythical race that's also completely alien to our world. Um, another empire had emerged. Brutal, a devourer of souls, its ruler was a warrior without equal. And Cruel had come to destroy him, had come to snap the chains of 12 million slaves, 12 million. 12 million. Hmm. That's a peculiar number. Uh, that's a peculiar number for a few reasons. First of all, as far as, as far as ancient empires go, that's pretty big. But more importantly, more to the point, Kaoru claims 7 million sacrifices. And I ask you, dear reader, where did those 5 million people go? You might say, oh, they were killed by the fall. I'll say, okay. So why is there still someone in Jagarugu? Why is there a Jakaruku left to speak of? Why are there people still on Jakaruku that know of Kalor and speak of him? I'm making references to Blood Moon here, but take my word for it. It doesn't matter if you read it or not. What happened to those five million that Kalor apparently didn't sacrifice? Who knows? <laughs> more importantly, once more. It contrasts Kalor with the Jagged Tyrants. I didn't mention this, I think, but it contrasts Kalor with the Jagged Tyrants, that they that only a human, a mortal, could command such mastery over his kin. Which for one is bollocks, because you're an elder god and you should know better. But for two, um it once again, like you are being predisposed towards how you should view Kalor before Kalor ever comes on page. You see the fall, you see the aftermath of the fall, you see exactly what went down with the fall, you see how an elder deity who is really powerful, in other words, and has come and is soaking up power because it will be needed to destroy this motherfucker, whoever he is. And you know of Kalor, at least tangentially, and he's a bit of a bitch of shit and goes to the moon and a particular great guy. He's never really a particularly great guy. 
and you're just being predisposed towards him to hate him, to dislike him, because if this much destruction was done to destroy him because he has 12 million slaves, then god damn, what did he do? Two other elder gods, two other elder gods, god damn, were converging on the Calorian Empire. The decision had been made. The three, last of the elder, citation needed, would bring to a close the hiking's despotic rule. Cruel could sense his companions. Both were close. Both had been comrades once, but they all, cruel included, had changed, had drifted apart. This would mark the first conjoining in millennia. That's weird. <laughs> I'm going to come out and say, that's a weird thing to say. And it's a weird thing to say because our data is mentioned. Our data is mentioned as being one of Kaur's subservient in this book. This prologue, we know that like other elders, like Male, like the like Arastas, like Kilmandaros, like a whole bunch of other elders exist. What I think is going on here is again this is framing. This is mythological framing. Like this was such a severe, large event. The three last elders came together one last time. They converged together upon this uh, dread empire to destroy this tyrannical ruler. Which yeah, that's what the myth's about. <laughs> That's what the myth is trying to tell you, but does not. It's not factual because it doesn't care. It's not about the fact. It's not about exactly what went down on Kalor's Empire 120,000 years ago. It's about the fact that this guy, this human ruler, was so awful, so dreadful, so horrible, so terrible, that he brought together for the first time in millennia. Trust me, bro. The three last elder gods. Trust me, bro. In order to destroy him, right? He could sense a fourth presence as well, which we're not concerned about. Uh, but it does mean, he does mention the weeds survive as we must, and when times come to die, we find our places of solitude, which paints Krull, cruel, I tried to say Krupp for some reason, cruel, in a more positive light again. He takes pity on this beast, on this elder deity-ish, which we know to be Tog, and who in this prologue identifies itself as being far older than these deities, again, cities are needed, um, but the point is, you have, before anyone approaches, before anyone speaks, okay, before like they speak to Kalor, before they speak to each other, before they, anyone else even appears. Let's recap, because we're going to be recapping quite a bit here, because I think it's important to understand the framing. Incredibly precise date, which tells you that this is probably a mythical fabrication. The sheer scale of the destruction of Draco's own corollary. The state of the survivors. Cruel, who is otherwise a compassionate deity, trust me bro, uh, cannot take pity on the survivors and embrace them because... He's going to need their power and their blood. Um, just how utterly dreadful Kaur is, you know, because he, for the first time, he's so terrible that he commands mastery over 12 million slaves who all hate him. Trust me, bro. Everybody. Um, somehow. <laughs> he won be 12 million them, apparently. Um, and he rules with an iron fist comparable to that of the Jagged Tyrants, which we know of because we've read Cards of the Moon and we know race, right? So he's terrible. Trust me, bro. He's in fact so fucking terrible that he brought together the three last elder gods, trust me, bro. Um, for the first conjoining in millennia, you destroy him. He's terrible. Really. We've not even met him yet, by the way. We have no idea who this guy is. We only learned who he is when it says the Calorian Empire. We know all of this, aside from the fact that he, this is the first time they uh, they converse together, strictly from the fact that he, they say that Cruel had come to destroy him, to snap the chains of 12 million slaves, up to the jagged tyrant part. We don't know this is Kalor, but we know he's awful. We know he's terrible, because they destroyed two and... Well, I should be accurate. One continent, because apparently the second continent was incinerated by Kalor, <clears throat> to destroy one man who was so awful, 
so dreadful, she can't even be named, right? <laughs> so, a few more interesting parts. The Calorian Empire had spread to every shoreline of Jakarugu, yet cruel saw no one as he took his first steps inland. Lifeless wastes stretched on all sides. The air was grey with ash and dust, the skies overhead churning like lead in a smith's cauldron. The elder god experienced the first breath of unease, sidling chill across his soul. Which is peculiar. It's peculiar um, for a few reasons, one of them being that apparently Cruel's on the west shore, while Corellus is the east of Jagarugu, but it doesn't matter. Um, we're not gonna bother about this. this I'm not bothering. Um, the point is, <clears throat> Cruel comes upon a lifeless landscape with no survivors to speak of. There's no scavengers, there's nobody like, cannibalizing one another, there's no, none of that. All we get is lifeless wastes filled with ash. And we even get a description that the heat remain all is dead, all has been incinerated, with the heat remaining deep beneath the beds of ash. Ash and bone. Dun dun dun! Yeah, cue the dramatic music, because, like, everything's dead. Someone burned the whole fucking place to the ground, and there's nothing left. Whoa. And a third voice speaks, presumably the sister, uh, says that, I, I am come from the south, where once were the cities, all destroyed. The echoes of a continent's death cry still linger. Are we deceived? Is this illusion? Which is peculiar. And then we get this quote that Draconis, I too fell on a death cry. Uh, such pain, indeed more dreadful in its aspect than that of the fallen one. If not a deception as our sisters are, if not a deception as our sister suggests, what has he done? And I want to highlight this part, because they presume, right, the three elders presume, that this death cry that they hear of the continent is a signature of Calor's madness, of his malice, of his insanity, of his spite. And he, in truth, incinerated everything. What I instead wish to propose is that what in truth happened is that Calor is grieving, okay? Calor has evacuated the populace, what little he could, however few people remain. He has evacuated them, because he knows the Elder Gods are coming, and he doesn't want them to... Who knows? I don't know what they'll do to them, because, well, they didn't fucking help the survivors of Corellary, right? And he has sat here, and he waits. And he waits, and waits, and he waits three whole fucking years before they step foot on his continent. Yikes. Now, on with the show. Uh, they move to the High King's abode, and they happen upon uh, a ragged hilltop where wind swirled through the ashes, spinning funereal wreaths skyward. Directly before them, on a heap of burnt bones, was a throne. Now, why is this part important? It's important because this is the most blatant fucking allegory that could still be read literally in work. Um, it's an allegory because... The imagery here is very vivid. You have funereal wreaths, which can both mean, wreaths by the way, can mean both um, well, a wreath, really, a flower circle, which is usually deposited as um, a funerary um, offering, I suppose, or drifts of smoke and ash. So that there's that nice interplay between them. There's also the fact that he's sitting atop a throne of, he's sitting atop a throne of unknown material, sitting on top a 
pile of burned bones on, presumably, where the cities once lied. And Nightshell tells us they are all destroyed. So, it's somewhat peculiar, um, for reasons which I'll get to in a moment, that the Elder Gods take this so literally. Right? He is literally sitting, not talking about a pile of burned bones. Alright, fine. What would the allegory be? What does the pile of burned bones and the throne atop where the cities once dwelt symbolize? Well, you might say, aspiring critical reader, good job by the way, proud of you, you would say that this symbolizes the ruins of Kaolor's empire, that he is sitting on top and ruling a burned, destroyed empire, either because he is so malicious that he is not going to give this up even in death, or because he's grieving, because he has lost everything, because he has lost seven million of his people overnight due to a handful of people who wanted to destroy him. Um, yeah, that would suck. <laughs> that would be a horrible Monday. And more than that, three deities have just come to him, right? And rather than help him, rather than help his people, rather than help his survivors, rather than help rebuild his civilization, even without him on the helm, all they do is watch on and say, what happened here? Are we deceived? Is this illusion? Well, how could this be? Like, sing me the fucking abyss, boss. Yeah. So... Yeah, the man seated upon it was smiling. As you can see, he rasped after a moment of scornful regard. I have prepared for your arrival. I'm not doing the voice, by the way. I should be doing the voice, but I'm not going to do the voice because I need this to be somewhat serious. <clears throat> oh yes, I knew you were coming. Draconus of Tiam skin, cruel, opener of the baths. His grey eyes swung to the third elder. And you. My dear, I was under the impression that you had abandoned your old self. Walking among the mortals, playing the role of middling sorceress. Such a deadly risk. So perhaps this is what entices you so to the mortal game. You've stood on fields of battles, woman. One stray arrow. He slowly took his head. A few things. Number one. He knows of these people. Uh, who are supposedly the last of the Elder and the first one joining in millennia. Now this means one of two things. One. That line is bullshit. He, they, it's not, This is not the first one joining in millennia. Or two. Kalor is a lot older. And they know of him in turn. Kalor is considerably older than what he is painted as here. Which is weird because, again, people claim, the, the prologue claims, cruel claims, that the first empire, a human empire, excuse me, Jesus, the human, first human empire was born after the legacy of Atlanimas. So what's a human heat doing here? That's not a discussion which I'm going to get into now, but it is interesting to think about. Why are humans around now? And why is Kalor so old? Moving on. We have come, Cruel said, to end your reign of terror. Kalor's brows rose. You would take from me all that I have worked so hard to achieve. Fifty years, the arrivals, to conquer an entire continent. Oh, perhaps Sadata still held out, always late in sending me my rightful tribute, but I ignored such petty gestures. She has fled, did you know? <laughs> the bitch. Do you imagine yourselves the first to challenge me? A circle brought down a foreign god. I, the effort went before I, thus sparing me the task of killing the fools with my own hand. And the fallen one, well, he'll not recover for some time, and even then, do you truly imagine he will accede to anyone's bidding? Lots of things to unpack here. Uh, first and foremost... 
Kuhl says that they have come to end his reign of terror. He sees nothing. He has seen no survivors on Dragoruki. Nobody. All he's seen is lifeless landscape filled with ashes and bones. And he is standing before a motherfucker who is currently sitting on a pile of bones on a makeshift throne, surrounded by the ruins of a city. What? <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? What? What? Now, um, again, I want to point out, this is due to the framing. This is due to the mythological framing of the narrative. This is very formal. You may note, they speak in, like, in terms of kin, brother Draconis, sister. Um, Draconis of Tian's kin, cruel opener of the paths. And you. I mean, Scorn, also not to give away the game that she's nitrile, but the point is, this lady is the only one that's not addressed formally, and both the Elder Gods and Kalor, other than this particular instance, speak very formally, until Kalor breaks down, the moment we'll get it, but the point is, they speak very formally, and in so doing, kind of miss the point of what's happening right now, uh, which, again, I want to stress, is the point. It's the point because this is a tale, fundamentally, about the hubris of challenging deities. Right, Kalor was so awful that in his hubris he thought he could, you know, challenge gods. And that backfired for him and now he's cursed. Wander eternally. Now go to bed. <laughs> no, but really. This is another way in which cruel, inhuman morality and idealism is brought to the fore. He is not thinking like a human would, saying this and thinking, holy shit, he killed everybody. Like, no, we are here to end your reign of tyranny. We are here to destroy your the links binding your slaves and whatnot. And Kalmor doesn't shoot it down. Kalmor doesn't say, my reign of terror? What reign of look at Look behind you, bro. There's nothing here. Take it. Well, he does actually say that in a moment. But the point is, he maintains this formality. He maintains the formality until he breaks down. He is trying to maintain this facade of what the legend of the hiking paints him as this ruthless warrior without equal who does indeed own 12 million slaves under his heel for fun but his grief gets the better of them very well the hiking side he leaned forward you have come to liberate my people from my tyrannical rule <laughs> sorry i imagine calor just looking around and like yeah i guess you are Alas, I am not one to relinquish such things, not to you, not to anyone. He settled back, waved a languid hand. Thus, what you would refuse me, I now refuse you. And I just want to highlight again, for one last time, for all the marbles, that there are no people to speak of. They have come across nobody. The only living person on this fucking thing that I have come across is Tog and Kalor. We know there are survivors, there have to be survivors, because again, he claims 7 million sacrifices, so there's 12 million people. But the point is, I haven't seen anybody. There's nobody here. No one. I also didn't mention that Ardata, who has fled the bitch, Ardata is also an Elder God, as an Elder Goddess, uh, who is also ludicrously powerful for the Book of the Fallen, and more so in Karkanas, but we're not getting into that now. And she flees. <laughs> Rather than aid at least the survivors, like, bring down Kalor yourself, you dumb bitch, and then leave, was probably what Kalor's thinking, but she's not. Why would she? She doesn't care. The point of this prologue is not to bash the Elder Gods, but it establishes them as very inhuman characters, inhuman entities. They are not human, and they do not pretend to be human. And that matters, 
when you conf- they confront a character whose fundamental trait is embodying humanity, and then they come and say, yes, we have come to end your reign of terror. Oh, it's all fucking yours. Here you go. As he says, though the truth was before Cruel's eyes, he could not believe it. What have- Are you blind? Kahlo shrieked, clutching at the arms of his throne. It is gone! They are gone! Break the chains, will you? Go ahead! No, I surrender them. Here, all about you is now free. Dust, bones, all free. Kahlo snaps, because the facade cannot be maintained any longer. Because there is nothing to maintain. He's not, he's not prattling, like Rakona says. This man is in grief. This man lost his fucking mind because he lost his entire empire and be it because he's a tyrant that laments the loss of the of his power or be it because he is a ruler that laments the loss of his people, it does not matter because these individuals are insulting him to his face. <laughs> because these people have come here and said, yes, we are going to end your reign of terror. And you're like, where were you? You could have done this three years ago before the whole shit went down. You had 50 years. 50 years in which I conquered the entire continent. 50 fucking years and you didn't bother. Three years after I, the fucking whole thing comes down, the continent breaks apart, you're here to point the finger at me. Okay, I did it. It's me. I'm the problem. And I think that's such a more interesting, more powerful reading of Kaur's outburst. Like, of course he goes out of his mind. He didn't do this. And they're here pointing the finger at him and like, yeah, I did this. More accurately, what he says, he's asked, you have in truth incinerated an entire continent? The sister elder whispered, Jakuruku is no more and never again shall be. What I have unleashed will never heal. Do you understand me? Never. And it is all your fault. Yours. Paved in bone and ash, this noble road you chose to walk. Your road. And then, Coward just fucking rubs it in their faces. You are to blame for this. This is your fault, because you could have prevented me from doing this. You want to blame me? Fine, but you are not blameless in the situation. This is your fault, because if you wanted to stop me, you could have stopped me. But you elected not to. You didn't want to. You didn't want to bother. You didn't want to try. You're just here to virtue signal and say, hey, we're here too. Like, no. No, you don't get to escape this. You don't get to escape the consequences of your own actions simply because... You are more powerful than I am. You don't. What I have unleashed will never heal. He does not deny that he incinerated the whole continent, but he does not confirm. He does not say, I incinerated the whole continent, because what I have unleashed will never heal. And I want to point out that this is very carefully, very meticulously worded. So when Kalor says, what I have unleashed will never heal, he could very well not be talking about the incineration of the continent. He could very well be talking about the fall of the crippled god. Because in his mind, he too is to blame. Because as Cruel said earlier, the summoners are not to blame anymore because they're dead. And the summoners sought power because they were desperate. Because they wanted to destroy Kalor. And Kalor internalizes this because they're dead and because he wants to make a point himself. Because these people are cunts. But they're dead cunts, and I can't punish them anymore, so I'm going to take the blame for the sake of all of the people who I lost. Because seven million of my people have been killed in the blink of an eye, for better or for worse, because I'm a tyrant and I like, enslaved all 12 million of them, or because they genuinely love me, or anything in between, they're all dead. They're all free now. How is that freedom treating them? Any better? <sighs>
and more so when, you know, the sister elder goes, we cannot allow this. It has already fucking happened, you foolish woman. It is a willful blindness of the elders to what has truly gone on in Jakarugu that so infuriates Kalor and me. I'm going to be honest, I also get pissed off on his behalf. Because they are here to act as arbiters, as indifferent arbiters of, like, some cosmic justice of some sort. We have a name for those people. They're called the Oracle of Sale. Um, but beyond that, they are not actively helping anyone. They're not doing anything. Cruel does commit one good act. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna make a warrant to put all this shit in so the, this world heals, but that's not gonna do anything for the survivors. Not in this generation, not in the next few generations over, right? Like, yeah, sure, the world will probably heal again, but to what end? You're not appending any orders. Like, yeah, color number's gone, and it's really the one, but something more, something better? No, you're not here to help them. You're just here to dish out your version of what justice is. Because you don't care. Because you're not human. Because you're not like me. Like Kalor. Because I cared for those people. Even as a power base. You know, because they were my slaves. I cared for them more than you do. And that says something. Now. We get to the curses. Cruel blinked. Fixed his dark, heavy eyes on the High King. For this crime, Kalor, we deliver appropriate punishment. Know this. You, Kalor, Adrian, Testasula, shall know mortal life unending. Mortal in the ravages of age, in the pain of wounds, in the anguish of despair, in dreams brought to ruin, in love withered, in the shadow of death's spectre, ever a threat to end what you will not relinquish. <clears throat> Dracona spoke. Kalor, Adrian, Testasula, you shall never ascend. Their sister said, Kalor, Adrian, Testasula, each time you rise, you shall then fall. All that you achieve shall turn to dust in your hands. As you have willfully done here, so it shall be in turn visited upon all that you do. Three voices curse you, cruel intoned. It is done. And I just want to point out, for besides the incredible formality, which again highlights the mythological framing as we talked about a lot of times already, what does this achieve? What does this achieve? Because I want to point out one more time that we have seen what the fall does. We have witnessed firsthand the, the sheer devastation of the fall of the crippled god that caused on another continent. And we know from Midnight Touch, which we'll get to immediately after the scene, that the same fall happened in Jakaruku. Perhaps not necessarily at the same scale to cause like murky pools of lifeless water, but at the very least, it completely decimated the cities. We know that, right? So what gives? What gives? Why are we cursing this guy? To eternal life, to eternal unlife. I'll tell you why. Because Kalor's a rival. Because they hate Kalor not because of what he did here, but because they he's a threat to their power. Because he managed to subjugate an elder god and her, uh, goddess himself and Ardata. Because he is a threat. He is a warrior without equal. He claims and told the hounds that he managed. Well, he didn't manage. He once tried, attempted to create an entire empire centered on worshiping him. Kalor very well could have been on the verge or beyond the verge of ascendancy at this point in time. That's why they curse them. Not because they care about the survivors and that they would have fucking bothered with the survivors if they actually did care. They don't. Kalor is a threat. He's a rival. There is no sense of justice here. There's no appropriate punishment. The crime is hubris. And the punishment is appropriate insofar as punishing another mortal for playing at the game of gods is. Because they're gods. And he's immortal. 
So the man on the throne trembled. His lips drew back in Erika's snarl. I shall break you, each of you. I swear this upon the bones of seven million sacrifices. Cruel, you shall fade from the world. You shall be forgotten. Draconis, what you create shall be turned upon you. And as for you, woman, unhuman hands shall tear your body into pieces upon a field of battle, yet you shall know no respite. Thus my curse upon you, sister of cold knights, Kalor, Adrian, Pestisula, one voice has spoken three curses. Thus. Mm. Why is this series of curses interesting? Because it's very cute. I'm gonna block. It's very cute. Cruel being forgotten is peculiar when you consider that up to and including the founding of Darugistan in about 2000 years before present day, according to Cutter, there is a temple dedicated to Cruel. People know of his name because he claims. Um, he claims a mask, a, a seat at the mask council in Kyrgyzstan. Um, he is not well-renowned, to be sure, but he's not forgotten and faded from the world, like other elders who died. <laughs> For instance, like Draconis or Quisenfarl. He's not like that. He is not a significant player, but he is still around. And overall, he's been fairly fine. Draconis being cursed to have what, is, what he creates be turned upon him is also interesting, because it's fairly, like... Similar to uh, Cruel's Curse or other Nightshell's Curse upon Kalor, but more so, it's cute because Tragniper is a weapon of untold power. Um, it is a prize that most ascendants fear and want for themselves since time immemorial. So, it doesn't really make a huge impact on anyone that what he has created shall be turned upon him. Probably not. Um, then you have Nightshell, which is incredibly specific, and also takes 120,000 years to be seen through if you try to prolong the stating system, which you shouldn't. But the point is, these are really shitty curses. <laughs> these are really, really shitty curses. Um, because Cruel takes millennia, apparently, to be completely forgotten, and to fade from the world, and even that he doesn't do. Nightshell takes... Impact the world for a few more millennia, you know. We know, learn from Quick Band that should be influencing events at least back to and including 2000 years ago. And Draconis, Draconis is the only one the curse have allegedly worked on, but he, he himself created a failsafe apparently and that worked out quite well. So, what I think is happening is there is a retroactive change of these curses from our omniscient narrator who is aware of the fates of these gods. So he said that cruel shall be fade from this world and be forgotten because the common sword, the crippled god, our narrator, is poison to cruel. He will fade from the world because he's been gradually weakened by the crippled god's influence. What Draconis creates shall be turned upon him is a fairly well-renowned story and even um, even recited in Fisher's on Vanderas. So Calvin will be aware of it if, if it's the only thing he knows about Draconis, which it isn't. And Nitril, Nitril is so specific and so far down the line that it's almost, like, it's a bit too much, you know? So, in that sense, Kalor's curses are not curses per se. They are, rather, they are curses to be sure, they're just not entirely clear if they take effect 
because of Calor's sacrificing, or simply because that's what the story demands, so that's what we're going to have Calor say. Similarly, there is a point to be made about what Calor says here, rather what Calor is being told by Cruel and the others, for this crime, Calor, you uh, shall know mortal life unending, mortal in the ravages of age, in the pain of wounds, and the anguish of despair. No shit. If he's already older than most of us we uh, expect, because he's been around for long enough to call these people his rivals, he would reasonably be quite old. And the only reason he's still alive is because of the century candles. So yeah, he would know mortal life unending, because he's not going to just roll up and fucking die. Mortal in the ravages of age and the pain of wounds and the anguish of despair. Again, no shit. In dreams brought to ruin. After how long? After how long? In love withered, in the shadow of death's specter, ever a threat to end what you will not relinquish. Everything fails eventually. Memento mori. Honestly, what Cruel says is more of a, a description of Kalor, other than a curse placed upon him. Similarly, you shall never ascend. What if he has already? Hmm? Have you considered that? Has anyone considered that? That Kalor has perhaps already ascended before? Such things have been teased about a carrium by Steve, and he has ascended in the past, forgotten how to do it, and then ascended again. Each time you rise, you shall then fall. That is the story of empires the world over, not a single individual. All that you achieve shall turn to dust in your hands. No shit. Uh, that's called entropy. Okay, not really, but the point is nothing lasts forever. That's encoded into the universe. As you have willfully done here, so it shall be in turn visited upon all that you do. Willfully done what? Is the question. Willfully done what exactly? Willfully destroyed his own empire? Eh? Debatable. So what has he done? I don't know. And similarly, we talked about Kalor's curses being way too cute and perhaps even fabrications. So the theory goes that the curse is not a metaphysical element of the world, but a narrative device used by the mythmakers, or common sort to give this message of hubris, of not going against the will of deities, not destroying your own empire, not committing genocide. Those things, you know, but the nice things children need to learn. <laughs> Jokes aside, I do think this theory has merit, because I think it's a much more interesting thing than saying, yeah, this guy's just a cartoonishly total evil bastard that just holds 12 million slaves and kills them for fun. Especially because we learn a few things about Calor and Told the Hound, but... That's not terribly relevant at this point in time. I might make a follow-up video to this if it gets blown up, if it gets, if it becomes relevant. Let's see that. Thus, the last thing I wish to highlight from this scene is when the three leave. Um, the the following quote said: "There was nothing more to be said. The three had come together with an intent they had now achieved. Perhaps not the manner they had they would have wished, but it was done, and the price had been paid willingly." Three lives and one, each destroyed. For the one, the beginning of eternal hatred. For the three, a fair exchange. Elder gods, it has been said, embodied a host of unpleasantries. And I ask you, dear reader, is that a fair exchange? Because Draconis and company think that this is a fair exchange for them, but for Kalor, they have destroyed his life. They have incited the beginning of eternal hatred in him. They have ruined him. They have turned him into the villain he's supposed to be. They have inadvertently caused the rise of the Legend of the High King. Because why bother? If Kalor is cursed, and he again very well might be, why bother? And the only reason he bothered, I think, is spite. 
spite and an unending desire to live on, to experience life in its every moment. Which, again, I'm getting into all the house here, which one relevant, but there is a very clear balance here. When they say three lives in one, each destroyed. My ass! Draconis is still at large if the series ends. Silverfuck is still at large if the series ends. Cruel is busy. Let's not get into that. So, how are three lives each destroyed? They're not. Kalor? Kalor is ruined for this life. <clears throat> now, I do also want to check out that scene in um, chapter 12, right? And more so, what I wish to talk about is what that says about the circle, Thaumaturgs that brought down the crippled god, the destroy Kalor, and more pertinently, what that says about Kalor himself and what it means for the historicity of this whole thing as a whole, right? So, this is, a, again, this is Bryce and Silgas. Silgas is giving Bryce a vision given to him in turn by the South House power thing about the fall and the Kalorian Empire. So, this is going to be quite long, so get, um, get comfortable. On the landscape before him was a vast city, rising up from a level plain with tiered gardens and raised walkways. A cluster of towers rose from the far side, reaching to extraordinary heights. Farmland reached out from the city's outskirts in every direction, for as far as Bryce could see, strange shadows flowing over it as he watched. He both his gaze and watched from the scene and looked down to find that he stood on a platform of red-stained limestone. Before him, steep steps ran downward, row upon row, hundreds, to a paved expanse flanked by blue-painted columns. A glance to his right revealed the sharply angled descent. He was on a flat-topped pyramid-shaped structure, and, he realized with a start, someone was standing beside him on his left. A figure barely visible, ghostly, to find detail. It was tall, and seemed to be staring up at the sky, focused on the terrible dark wound. Objects were striking the ground now, landing hard but with nowhere near the velocity they should have possessed. A loud crack reverberated from the conkers between the columns below, and Bryce saw that a massive stone carving had come to rest there. A bizarre, beast-like human, squatting with thickly muscled arms, reaching down the front, converging with a two-handed grip on the penis. Shoulders and head were fashioned in the likeness of a bull. A second set of legs, feminine, were wrapped round the beast-man's hips, the platform on which he crouched and cut, Bryce now saw, into a woman's form, lying on her back beneath him. From nearby rose the clatter of scores of clay tablets, too distant for Bryce to see if there was writing on them, though he suspected there might be, skidding as if on cushions of air before coming to rest in scattered swath. Fragments of buildings, cut limestone blocks, cornerstones, walls of adobe, wattle and daub, then severed limbs, blood-drained sections of cattle and horses, a herd of something that might have been goats, each one turned inside out, intestines flopping, dark-skinned humans, or at least their arms, legs, and torsos. Now this is the aftermath of the fall, as it is shown by Silgas to Bryce. What he's witnessing right now is the wound right, that opens up, and what is falling onto Jakaruku. Now, why is it Jakaruku? You'll have to trust me. Take my word for it. Trust me. Okay. Um, and it's important because it also establishes the origin of the crippled god. Right? That's not terribly relevant at this point. And the landscape, as Bryce describes it, this tiered garden, this ziggurat-like structure, this these columns, all around a flourishing city is about to be leveled. Above the sky, above, the sky was filling with large pallid fragments floating down like snow, and something huge 
was coming through the wound. Wreathed in lightning that seemed to scream with pain, shrieks unending, deafening. Soft words spoken by his mind, my ghost, let loose to wander, perhaps to witness. A word against Kalor, it was a worthy cause, but what would they have done here? Bryce could not pull his eyes from that howling sphere of lightning. He could see limbs within it, the burning arcs entwined about them like chains. What? What is it? A god, Bryce predicted. In its own realm, it was locked in the war, for there were rival gods. Temptations. Is this a vision of the past? Bryce asked. The past lives on, the figure replied. There is no way of knowing, standing here. How do we measure the beginning? The end. For all of us, yesterday was us today, and as it will be tomorrow. We are not aware, or perhaps we are, yet choose for convenience, for peace of mind, not to see, not to think. A vague gesture with one hand. Some say twelve mages, some say seven. It does not matter, for they are about to become dust. That's one of the reasons why it's Jack Rugo. <clears throat> Master's fear was roaring now, burgeoning with frightening speed as it plunged earthward. It would, Bryce realized, strike their city. Thus, in their effort to, to enforce a change upon the scheme, they annihilate themselves and their own civilization. So they failed. The figure said nothing for a time, and the descending god struck. A blinding flash, a detonation that shook the pyramid beneath them and sent fissures through the conquerors below. Smoke rising in a column that then billowed outward, swallowing the world in shadow. Wind rushed outward in a shock, flattening trees in the farmland, toppling the columns lining the conquerors, the trees that burst into flame. In answer to a perceived desperation, fueled by seething rage, they called down a god and died with the effort. Does that mean they failed under Gambit? No, I do not speak of Kalor. I speak of their helplessness, which gave rise to their desire for change. Bryce Beddick, were there ghosts standing with us now, here, in the future world where our flesh resides, thus able to see what their deed has wrought, they would recognize that all they sought has come to pass. That which was chained to the earth has twisted the walls of its prison beyond recognition. Its poison has spread and infected the world and all who dwell upon it. Oh boy. Now, why is this important? It's important because Silcast basically says that these people that called down the crippled god answered a perceived desperation that rendered them feeling helpless. And due to their desire for change born of those feelings, they decided to call down the god. Um, and to do so, they said an elaborate trap which went over in numbers of ways, but looking back now, they could see that what they sought to enforce the change that they sought to enforce in the world has come to pass. For better or for worse is left as an exercise to the reader. Silicus does not say. Silicus does not tell you, yeah, this changed for the better. No, he says things changed. That's what they wanted. They wanted to enforce change. Oh, wait, no, it's far worse because the crippled god is so fucking much worse for the entire world at large. That which was chained to the earth has twisted the walls of its prison. Its poison has spread out and infected the world and all who dwell upon it. Change, but not necessarily for the better. And that change was born by a handful of idiots with hubris in their mind. Hubris being the theme that drives the, the prog memories of ice. You leave me without hope, Bryce said. I'm sorry for that. Do not seek to find hope among your leaders. They are the repositories of poison. Their interest in you extends only so far as their ability to control you. From you, they seek duty and obeisance, obeisance, obedience, same thing, and they will ply you with the language of staring faith. 
they seek followers, and woe to those who question or voice challenge. Civilization after civilization, it is the same. The world falls to tyranny with a whisper. The frightened are ever keen to bow to perceived necessity, in the belief that necessity forces conformity, and conformity a certain stability. In a world shaped into conformity, dissidents stand out, are easily branded and dealt with. There is no multitude of perspectives, no dialogue. The victim assumes the face of the tyrant, self-righteous and intransigent, and wars breed like vermin, and people die. Oh boy. Oh boy. So what is Elka saying here? Now, I have not analyzed the scene quite as much as I would like to get to the bottom of it, but what I think Selgas is saying here is that pretty much the leaders of a certain group, a certain civilization, have enforced a certain manner of, I would say, existence upon the group. And in order to do so, they do so because they're frightened, because they fear the unknown, because they fear what they cannot control. And so they enforce control by enforcing a certain measure of... As he calls it, staring faith, right? And he says then, the frightened are ever keen to bow to a perceived necessity. In the belief that necessity forces conformity, conformity is certain stability. So, in effect, what I believe has happened, Jack Rugu, again, I am not drawing from blood and bone here. What I believe happened in Jack Rugu is that the thaumaturgs pre the circle pre existed Kalmar, because Kalmar has only been on the continent for 50 years, right? And Kalor comes along, and he starts enforcing his own measure of change. And in so doing, he threatens stability, and he threatens the conformity. And he also similarly applies the similar concepts, which Stolkast talks about here. You know, he enforces faith, possibly with him at the helm. He enforces conformity, and from conformity stems stability. But the frightened subjects his people the people who lost power because they held it in his stead and he dug it from them, are ever um, eager, shall we say, you know, to assume the face of the tyrant. And so, in desperation, which Cruel sort of dismissed as, like, a worthy goal, right? Because Sulkas isolates this incident from its context. He says, yeah, they warred against Kalor, which was a worthy cause, but are they any better? Is what they did better? Is the change they brought forth better? Did they think this through? No, they didn't. They were frightened. They perceived a necessity. Their power base being threatened. And they acted upon that necessity. And what that necessity brought forth? Poison, rage, pain, grief, the destruction of two entire continents. Was it worth it? I don't know. It certainly was change. <sighs> Bryce studied the firestorm engulfing what was once the city of great beauty. He did not know its name, nor the civilization that birthed it, and it now struck him. It did not matter. In your world, the figure said, the prophecy approaches its azimuth. An emperor shall arise. You are from a civilization that sees war as an extension of economics. Stacked bones become the foundation for your roads of commerce, and you see nothing untoward in that. Some of us do. Irrelevant. Your legacy of crushed cultures speaks its own truth. You intend to conquer the Dicedra. You claim that each circumstance is different, unique, but it is neither different nor unique. It is all the same. Your military might proves the virtue of your cause. But I tell you this, Bryce Benedict, there is no such thing as destiny. Victory is not inevitable. Your enemy lies in waiting, in your midst. Your enemy hides without need for disguise, when belligerence and implied threat 
are sufficient to cause your gaze to shy away. It speaks your language, takes your words, and uses them against you. It mocks your belief in truths, for it has made itself the arbiter of those truths. Whether it's not a tyranny, you assume the spirit of your civilization is personified in your benign king. It is not. Your king exists because it is deemed permissible that he exists. You are ruled by greed, a monstrous tyrant lit gold with glory. It cannot be defeated, only annihilated. Another gesture towards the fire chaos below. That is your only hope of salvation, Bryce Bedeck, for greed kills itself when there is nothing left to hoard, when the countless legions of laborers are not but bones, when the grisly face of starvation is revealed in the mirror. The god has fallen. He crouches now, seeding devastation. Rise and fall, rise and fall, and with each renewal the guiding spirit is less, weaker, more tightly chained to a vision bereft of hope. Oh boy. Ominous and portentous. So what is Silgas talking about here? Rather, what do I want you to take away from what Silgas is saying here? He's saying a lot of things. Mostly that Silgas makes a very good point that leather is ruled by greed. Leather is a tyranny that is ruled by a tyrant lit gold by glory. And it uses methods available to it to perpetuate itself because it knows that it cannot last. It will, Jesus Christ, excuse me, it will eventually destroy itself if it continues. And so it has to keep devouring more and more because otherwise it is going to self-destruct. Asgara Discanar does not go against the grain. He is deemed permissible to exist. He is an individual which is permissible to exist. The system he has claimed control over permits him his rule. It allows him to continue because if it did not, he would not be here to tell the tale. And when such systems are threatened, they often push back with violence, because violence is often a manner in which the powerful seek to maintain their power. Mostly because they feel helpless, because without their power they are nobodies. And I want you to think that if Ascara, who is otherwise a fairly, I don't want to say decent, he's pretty much neglectful, but he's not a dipshit, deemed permissible to exist, why was Kalor deemed non-permissible? Why was Kalor basically the straw that broke the camel's back? And, and, if under Kalor, right, cities would flourish to such an extent, as we saw here, that he, the people in power before Kalor felt threatened by his rule, what did they embody which Kalor rejected and did not? That is unfortunately a question that I'm sure blood and bone check and get into, but it is an interesting question of what do the thaumaturgs embody that Kalor doesn't? Rather, what is it that Kalor is antithetical towards to the point where it forced his removal by the ruling powers before he came along? A removal by force by means of the fall, of such force as to destroy the entire fucking continent. What? Is he so fucking terrible that they hated him that much? Or is he not all that terrible? The choice, my friends, is yours. Read Blood and Bone. Wonderful book. With that said, then, I, um, if I go and talk about all the hack, I'll be here for another three hours and I have to go. So, <laughs> just aside, 
I might make a follow-up video on this talking about his scenes and all the hounds. I'm not sure if I will or when will I will do that, but I, I wanted to get this out there because the last time I tried to record something like this, I wasn't recording my audio, and if I don't do it again, I am never going to, like, you're probably never going to see this, and I am never going to try this again. But assuming that the audio got recorded properly and I did not fuck something up again, um, yeah. Thank you very much for watching and slash or listening. I have been Lee. This has been Smiles After Hours. Thank you for listening. Good night.